Father, we ask that by the work of Your Holy Spirit, You would show us Christ and help us to believe in Christ that we might trust in Him alone for our salvation. For He is Your eternal Son, the Son of God from all eternity, who became the Son of Man in the fullness of time to work out our salvation, a full and free salvation that is now ours through the God-Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today I am doing something that very few preachers do. It's bold, it's risky. I am preaching in the Advent Christmas season from the Gospel of Mark. Alright, pretty, pretty daring. Uh, Mark tends to get left out this time of year for obvious reasons. It's the only of the four Gospels that does not have the Christmas story. There's no Christmas story in Mark's Gospel. It doesn't tell us how Jesus came into the world. There's no virginal conception here. There's no birth narrative. There's no manger with a wriggling baby. There's no wise men visiting from afar. There are no angels singing to shepherds. Matthew and Luke, you know, they're, they're sort of full service Gospels. They give you the story of Mary and Joseph and the birth of baby Jesus. Uh, John's Gospel does even better than that. He goes further back all the way to the eternal pre-existence of the Son. And it tells us that the Word was made flesh. This eternal Word of God took on human flesh. God entered the world in the incarnation of the Word, the Son. But Mark doesn't do that. Mark begins with Jesus at 30 years of age. He begins with Jesus not getting born, but getting baptized. He begins not with the birth of Jesus, but with the birth of Jesus' ministry. Jesus launching His ministry. And Mark's Gospel goes from there. So if Mark doesn't tell the Christmas story, why are we here? Why are we staying in Mark's Gospel as we approach the Christmas season? Well, it's true Mark doesn't tell us how Jesus entered the world. But he does tell us why Jesus entered the world. Mark has a lot to say about Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission, why He came. Indeed, this passage here in Mark 9 helps us to understand why Jesus came into the world. It also shows us how the disciples misunderstood His coming and how Jesus corrected them. So those are really the three things we want to look at this morning. First, why Jesus came. Second, how the disciples misunderstood, and then finally, what Jesus did to correct them. So first, why did Jesus come? Jesus identifies His purpose in verse 31 by talking about His death and resurrection. He came in order to die and rise again. Now, He's already told them about His cross and His resurrection back in chapter 8. He's going to repeat it again in chapter 10. Uh, really culminating with, with chapter 10, verse 45, these passion predictions of Jesus. There in 1045, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so you might take that statement really as a great summary of what Christ's mission is all about. The Son of Man came. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son of Man, entered into our humanity and our history in order to serve us. Not to be served, but to serve us, to be our servant. 
Look again at how chapter 9, verse 31 describes it. He says, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will rise on the third day. It's interesting, every time Jesus talks about His coming death, He describes Himself as the Son of Man. Now why is that? Why is that His title of choice? Why does He designate Himself as the Son of Man? In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a figure of glory who ascends into heaven and inherits a kingdom and reigns over all the nations of men. But here, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, it's not a figure of glory, it's a figure of shame. It's not one who reigns, it seems, but rather a servant who suffers. What else can we say about Son of Man? Son of Man is a title that certainly must have several layers of meaning. Most simply, it's, it's simply Son of Adam. Son of Man means Son of Adam. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall into sin and pollute the whole river of humanity and history downstream from them. There in the, in the context of God pronouncing judgment on their sin, God also promises to Adam a son. He promises a son to Adam and Eve, one who will undo what they've done in the garden. One who will come and undo the damage they've caused. In Genesis 3, he's called the seed of the woman, but he's obviously also the son of Adam, the son of man. That is to say, this seed of the woman, this son of Adam, will be a new Adam who will do what Adam should have done but failed. He will crush the serpent's head. He will defend the bride. He will take dominion over the whole creation in order to build God's kingdom. As Son of Man, Jesus is the one who inherits all the tasks originally given to Adam, originally given to man. And He will succeed in those tasks as a new Adam. But there's still more we can say about Son of Man. The one who's called Son of Man most frequently in the Old Testament, uh, actually about 90 times, is Ezekiel. Ezekiel's got a long book, a very neglected book in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezekiel is a priest and a prophet who spoke and acted in parables in order to announce judgment on unfaithful Israel and her temple. But he also announced a way of escape, a way of salvation for those who would trust in the Lord. And indeed talked about God giving to His people a new heart and a new spirit and building for them a new temple. Obviously, if Jesus is identifying Himself as the Son of Man, He's identifying Himself as a new and greater Ezekiel. He will fulfill Ezekiel's pattern of ministry. Indeed, we've already seen it. Jesus doing priestly things and prophetic things. Jesus speaking and acting in parables of judgment on Israel, but also talking about a salvation that is to come. Now, when Jesus says the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men that the Son of Man will be given over to men, what is He saying? He's saying, I am the unique Son of Man. I am the new Adam. The truly human One. And I will be given over to men. The very ones He identifies with. The very ones whose flesh and blood He now shares. The ones He has taught and wept over. They will be the ones 
to kill him in cold-blooded murder. See, when Jesus calls Himself Son of Man, that means in some way He represents all of humanity. But in another sense, the men He has given over to represent all of humanity as well. And what do they do? What do they do as representatives of all of humanity when they meet the Son of Man, God, in the flesh? They kill Him. They murder Him. Humans become God-killers, murderers of God. God dies a human death at the hands of humans. The one who is the Son of Man is given over to men. And what do they do? They kill Him. The eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. And what did men do with Him? They killed Him. God became a man and men killed God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And really... That's the story of the Gospel. That's the meaning of the cross. That's why Jesus came. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because Jesus came into the world. And why do we celebrate His coming into the world? Because Jesus entered into the world as a man in order to suffer and die at the hands of men in order to win man's salvation. God became man in Jesus so He could be weak, and vulnerable, and yes, killable. Because through dying that death, through dying that death, He would accomplish our salvation. Such a death was required in order to accomplish our salvation. See, we, we look at the cross and, 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 and we want to know what it's all about. The cross is not just some act of cosmic injustice. You know, really, the disciples hearing this should have asked themselves, if Jesus is just, and we know that He is, why would God allow Him to suffer such an injustice, the kind of injustice He's talking about? If Jesus is just and righteous, why would He die this unjust and unrighteous death? But if the disciples had started to really ponder that question, they might have started to figure out what He was actually talking about, why He was going to do this. See, the cross demonstrates, yes, man's injustice, but it also demonstrates God's justice. The cross is, yes, the ultimate display of man's evil and hatred, but it is also God's ultimate display of His love and righteousness. What makes the cross make sense is the very thing that makes it seem most like nonsense. It seems like nonsense that men would kill God when He comes to them in human form. But that's precisely why God came in human form. He had to die a human death in order to redeem us from our sin and from the curse. God died so men can be freed from death. God was cursed so men could be redeemed from the curse. God was killed and condemned so man could be acquitted and lived. God in Jesus has undone what man in Adam did wrong. See, that that's what Jesus is talking about here. The senselessness of the evil that is the cross makes perfect sense when we look at it in light of God's loving purposes. The cross shows us that the love of God is greater than the hatred of men. What makes the cross logical indeed, what makes the cross electrifying 
is understanding the depths of human depravity that required it and that caused it. See, the more you see the greatness of your own sin, the more you see the greatness of the world's sin, the more the cross makes sense. The more you see your own depravity and the depravity of the world around you, the more amazing the love and grace of the cross appear. So what is this season, the Advent-Christmas cycle? What's it really all about? Advent is all about God's promise to send a Savior. Why does the world need a Savior? Because Adam and Eve went wrong in the beginning. And so God must send a Savior to make it all right. What is Christmas? Christmas means God has begun to fulfill that promise in the birth of His Son into the world. But these these seasons of the calendar don't stand alone. Christmas leads to Good Friday. Where we see that the Son of Man came to serve, to offer Himself as a ransom for man. That squirming baby in the manger becomes the bleeding man on the tree. So no, Mark doesn't have for us a Christmas story. He doesn't tell the Christmas story, perhaps the way the other Gospels do. So don't see quite here how the manger leads to the cross. But he does show us why Jesus entered the world. He came to die. He came so that as the God-man, He might go to the cross. So that that tree of death might become a tree of life to us. Dude, I would say, let your Christmas tree this season be a pointer to and reminder of the tree of life. The tree on which Jesus died. We have Christmas trees because Jesus hung on a tree. Let your Christmas gifts be reminders not only of the Father giving the gift of His Son to us and His birth into the world, but also a reminder of the Son giving Himself, giving the gift of Himself, the gift of His life on the cross. The ultimate gift of His love when He lays down His life for us. Let your feasting at Christmas remind you that Jesus died on the cross to give you the greatest feast of all, a communion meal in which we eat and drink His sacrifice, His body, and His blood. See, this is why Jesus came. Mark doesn't tell us how He came, but He certainly answers why He came. He came to die, and in dying, to conquer death. He came to be killed by wicked men so that wickedness could be forgiven. He came to be hated so that in His death, love might triumph over hatred. That's why He entered the world. Now Jesus has talked about this. He's spelled it out plainly what's coming. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to, the Son of Man will be given over to men. And they will do with Him as they wish. What do the disciples do with this teaching? How do they process it? The disciples at this point are clueless. And indeed, they will remain clueless for quite some time. It would be humorous to see their cluelessness if it weren't so sad. And what really makes it sad is that we can be just as clueless as the disciples as we'll see. Right after Jesus makes this prediction of what's coming, right after He talks about His impending death, His cross, they're walking along the way. Jesus out in front of them. They're 
walking along, following behind him. And they get into a discussion on the way, a really heated discussion, a debate. Well, what are they discussing? Jesus asks them when they get to the house where they're staying in Capernaum. Yes, what were you discussing on the way? And uh, you know, maybe you've had an experience like this. You know that awkward silence that follows when somebody's been caught red-handed doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Jesus asks, "What were you discussing?" And they kind of get embarrassed and they get uh, tongue-tied, and so they just won't answer the question. There's a kind of guilty silence. And of course, we know the reason why. It's because they've been talking about, or again, really arguing about, which of them would be the greatest. Which one of the twelve is going to be the top dog when the kingdom is inaugurated? Who's going to have the best position, the most prominence, the most glory? Who's going to have that, that best position when the kingdom is is inaugurated. They're arguing over who can climb the kingdom ladder fastest and highest. They're competing with one another, jockeying for position, trying to one-up each other. And in doing so, of course, they're actually showing that their vision of the kingdom is really a lot more like that of Herod and the Pharisees and the scribes than it is Jesus. This is precisely what Jesus warned them about when He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What did Herod and the Pharisees share in common? Well, about the only thing was their vision of the kingdom. And here the disciples are infected by that same vision. The disciples at this point don't know much. That's obvious. But they knew that Jesus would not be happy with them for having this discussion. And so they're silent when He asks them. It's the second time in this chapter that Jesus has asked someone about a dispute. Earlier in this chapter, using basically the same language, He asked the scribes when He was coming down off the mountain of transfiguration and He finds the scribes and His disciples having a debate. He asked the scribes, what are you disputing about? Here, the same question is posed, but now to the disciples. And that means they're really parallels. We're, we're supposed to look for parallels between the two stories. They're both triggered by Jesus asking the same question. So you've got to look for connections between this, the two stories. What was that first story about? The first time Jesus asked about a dispute, that story in chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, turned out to be about a deaf and mute boy. Here he asks the same question. What does the story turn out to be all about? It turns out to be about deaf and mute Disciples. They're deaf to the message of Jesus. They're deaf to the message of the cross. Which is so sadly ironic. Remember what happened in the transfiguration? Jesus on the mountain uh, begins to glow and radiate with this dazzling splendor of glory. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. That's the transfiguration mandate. To listen to Jesus. To hear the words of Jesus. But are the disciples heeding the voice of the Father by listening to the voice of Jesus? No. The disciples are not hearing Jesus at all. Verse 32 says the disciples did not understand Jesus' words. They were deaf to His words. It's like His words were just passing in one ear and out the other. Just bouncing off of them. They didn't understand His words. They were deaf to His words about the cross. Not only are they deaf, they can't really hear what Jesus is saying, they're also mute. 
So when he asks them, what were you arguing about? They fall silent. They can't speak. They get tongue-tied. It's ironic. There are other ironies here as well. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus warned, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words, that is the word of the cross that he's just been speaking, anyone who is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. If you're ashamed of the cross, there will be no glory for you when that glory comes. Well, the disciples to this point have clearly been ashamed of the words of Jesus, ashamed of the word of the cross. They're ashamed of the words He's speaking about His death. But they just ignore that shame and keep on pursuing glory. They're talking about who's going to be the most glorious. But if they had considered that warning Jesus gave at the end of chapter 8, they'd realize if they continue on this present path, consumed with their own greatness, consumed with pursuing their own glory, there will be no glory for them at all, only shame when the Son of Man comes. If they keep this up, they're going to miss out on glory altogether and only receive shame. But it gets even worse. The the ironies get even sharper. Again, it would be comic if it weren't so tragic. Earlier in this chapter, remember, as Jesus came down off the mountain of transfiguration, what were the disciples doing? They were trying to perform an exorcism. They were trying to drive the demon, the unclean spirit, out of this boy. And they failed. They failed at that. They could not drive the demon out. They were humiliated. They lost this spiritual battle. They were humiliated, but they were not humbled. Being humiliated and being humbled are two different things. They've been humiliated, but they haven't been humbled. In the story immediately after this one that we're looking at this morning, they're going to encounter a man an unnamed exorcist, a man who is successfully driving out demons in Jesus' name. And what do they do? Do they rejoice with Him? Oh, here's somebody doing what we had failed to do. No, they try to shut Him down. They try to put Him out of business. They try to make Him stop performing exorcisms. Why? Because He's not part of their little group. And so they see it as a kind of unauthorized use of Jesus' name because He's not part of the band of the Twelve. You think there was maybe just a little bit of jealousy and and rivalry that made them want to shut this man down and put him out of the exorcism business? Oh, I'm sure there was. The chapter starts with them failing at an exorcism. Here's a man who is succeeding as they try to stop him. Again, verse 32 tells us that when Jesus talked about being betrayed and killed and then rising on the third day, they did not understand. They did not understand. And it tells us they were afraid to ask. I think they were afraid to ask because they were trying to find some kind of satisfying interpretation for Jesus' words. See, up to this point in the Gospel, when Jesus has spoken metaphorically, the disciples have taken it literally. That's the kind of thing you see happening in chapter 6 where he discusses bread and leaven with them. And he's speaking metaphorically and parabolically and they take him literally and so they miss the point. Now that Jesus has started to talk about His cross, He's speaking literally, but they're probably trying to find some metaphorical explanation, some kind of metaphorical 
interpretation. But see, the bottom line is they don't understand. They're clueless. Now, what's the problem here? When people argue over greatness, you know, when somebody goes around and proclaims, I am the greatest. I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. I'm going to have the best position. What do we call that? What's, what's the word we use to describe that? We call that pride. Think about all the different manifestations of pride that are going on here. There's the argument about who's going to be the greatest. But there are a lot of other manifestations of their pride. When someone's unwilling to ask a question about something they don't understand, when they won't ask the teacher, the teacher is taught, they didn't understand, but they won't ask a question, what keeps people from asking questions most often? It's pride. You, 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 you don't want to look dumb. And so you don't ask a question. When someone gets jealous of someone else's success like they appear to be doing in the next story with a successful exorcist, when somebody gets jealous of somebody else's success, what drives that? What motivates that? It's pride. But here's the thing about pride. Pride deceives us. Indeed, pride blinds us. Sometimes, I, you know, I think we will think, well, pride's not really a struggle for me because I'm not all that great. You know, pride is a struggle for the people who are really successful or really wealthy or really smart. Those are the people who will struggle with pride. Not me. But you look at the disciples and you, you know, you look at the disciples in this context and the disciples are failures and they're ignorant. They failed at the exorcism. They're ignorant. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They're ignorant of His words. And yet, they are still prideful. They're still full of themselves. And we can be this way too. You don't have to be great at something to struggle with pride. The disciples here are kind of like a team that has lost every game and yet they still hold up their finger and chant, we are number one. They're wrong about everything. They fail at everything. And yet, they think they're the best there is. They're arguing over which one's going to get top position. They're ignorant of the cross. They're ignorant of what Jesus is talking about. They failed in the exorcism. And yet still, here they are. Full of themselves. Actually, though, these things go hand in hand. Their ignorance of the cross and their pride really fit together as two sides of the same coin. The reason they don't see what Jesus is talking about with the cross is because they don't see their need of the cross. They don't see their need, period. Why did they fail at the exorcism? Again, go back to that previous story. Why did they fail at the exorcism? Jesus says it's because they didn't pray. And you've got to be pretty sure of yourself pretty confident in yourself, pretty cocky about your spiritual powers to not pray while attempting an exorcism. To think that you could drive out a demon without praying? You've got to be full of pride. Why didn't they understand what Jesus was talking about when He talked about His cross? Because they thought they already knew it all. They thought they already had it all figured out. They were sure of their interpretation. 
of history. They were sure they knew what would happen. They were sure they understood what was going on all around them. They were so sure of their interpretation of events, so sure of their knowledge about how things would unfold, they would not reconsider their interpretation even in light of the words of Jesus. Now let me ask you, while we're giving the disciples such a hard time here, mocking them for their foolish pride, do we find ourselves doing the same thing? Do we fall into the same trap of pride as the disciples? Well, think about this. Why were the disciples arguing about greatness? Why, did, why were they jockeying for position? And, 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 and why were they arguing about who would be the greatest? Why would they want to be great? Because if you're great in the way they're thinking about greatness, that means you don't have to serve people, you get served. It means you don't have to suffer, you get to avoid suffering. It means if you're great the way the disciples are thinking of greatness, you're going to get your way. You're going to be in control. Do we pursue those things ourselves? Do we sometimes twist the way of the Christian life? so as to avoid suffering and sacrifice and service? Do we want to be in control to get our way all the time? Then we do. We're just like the disciples. Do we crave greatness? Do we crave recognition and status and popularity and prestige and wealth and success? Like the disciples, we can let pride deceive us and blind us and skew our perspective and skew our priorities and we lose sense of what is really most important. Like the disciples, do we fail to pray continually and fervently. Prayerlessness, I think that's a sin a lot of Christians would say they struggle with, but you know what? Prayerlessness is due to pride. Prayerlessness is a symptom of a prideful heart. Because if you were really conscious and aware of how utterly helpless you are and how utterly dependent you are on God's grace, then you would be a praying Christian. If we were really aware of how helpless we are, how needy we are, we would be a praying people. And if we don't find ourselves praying steadily, continually, praying without ceasing. You know why that is? I mean, you could say, oh, it's laziness. You could attribute it to any number of other sins, but at its root, it is pride. It is pride that keeps us from prayer. It is pride that makes us think we can go out and do the day's work and do the things God has called us to do without God's help. Just like the disciples thought they could cast out a demon without God's help. Maybe for us, we, we, we would know better than to try to do an exorcism without praying. But how many things do you try to do each day without prayer? How many times do we try to serve God in the strength of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit? Like the disciples, do we sometimes think we understand more than we do? Are we sometimes too sure of ourselves, too sure of our own interpretation of what's going on around us. We think we've got things figured out a bit more than we really do. Again, that's pride. 
And that kind of pride keeps us from being able to hear the words of God. It's pride that keeps us from listening to Jesus. Like the disciples, do we let our desire for greatness create rivalry and division in the community. We get jealous of others and we try to find ways to drag them down, pull them down, and meanwhile we're trying to find ways to prop ourselves up. The disciples got into a little rivalry here. It's what happens again in that next story when they try to shut down the unnamed exorcist. There's division between the disciples within the twelve, but then they also have a division with this other man who's working in Jesus' name. Instead of appreciating his success and cheering him on and being happy for him, they get jealous, and that's pride. And we know that this is part of the issue that's going on here because this whole chapter ends with Jesus calling His disciples to have peace with one another. It's really humility that is the glue that holds a community together that creates peace. Pride creates division and hostility and rivalry. And that's what you see among the disciples here. Pride is deceitful and pride is deadly. Pride is like carbon monoxide. It kills you slowly and silently and without you even knowing. It chokes out faith. It chokes out hope. It chokes out love. Well, finally, how does Jesus correct His disciples here? Indeed, we might ask, how does Jesus correct us? He pinpoints the problem. And in verse 35, He gives them the rule of His kingdom. Another one of these paradoxes. Again, back at the end of chapter 8, He gave a paradoxical rule for His kingdom. He who wants to save his life must lose it. And he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Here you've got another one of those paradoxes. A paradoxical principle that governs life and His kingdom. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This you could call the end of the line principle. He who wants to be first in line must go to the end of the line. He who wants to be greatest must make himself the least. Now I want you to notice something here. Jesus here does not prohibit ambition. Jesus does not have any problem with seeking greatness. If anything, Jesus is encouraging the pursuit of greatness. He wants you all to pursue greatness. He wants you to be great. Jesus is fine even if you say, I want to be greatest of all. Jesus does not have a problem with that kind of ambition. Provided you understand that the way to greatness is through service. Desiring to be great is a good thing if you understand what it really means. If you understand that the way up is down. If you understand that we descend into greatness. We become great by lowering ourselves in humility. Greatness flows downward. Glory flows downward. But Jesus here doesn't just give the disciples a sermon about service and humility, He provides them with an object lesson. He takes a little child into His arms. Literally, He takes this child up and He hugs this child and He holds this child in His arms. They're in a house in Capernaum. They are probably in a house that belongs to Peter and or Andrew. 
It's possible even that this is one of their children, one of the disciples' children, or maybe to make it even more scandalous, perhaps it is one of the servants' children. Whatever the case, it's a child. And in that world, children were completely marginalized. They had no standing, no rights, very little value or worth. But Jesus takes this child into His arms and treats the child as a priceless treasure. He says, whoever receives one of these little children in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives not only Me, but Him who sent Me. Jesus here gives to His disciples a litmus test for kingdom living. You want to know, have you adopted the way of God's kingdom? Well, here's a test for you. It's a test how you treat children. How do you treat children? What is your attitude towards children? Jesus says here, your attitude towards children reveals the pride or humility that is in your heart. It reveals whether or not you have the posture of a servant. Jesus takes this little child and He wraps His arms around this child showing He identifies with children. With the children of His people. Again, verse 37, He says, Whoever receives one of these little ones in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives not only Me, but Him who sent Me. We didn't read this, but a few verses later in verse 42, He describes these children, the children of His disciples, as little ones who believe in Me. He sees these children as united to Himself. Christian parents especially. I mean, everybody needs to hear this, but Christian parents especially. Hear me. The children of your household belong to Jesus. Jesus describes them as little ones who believe in Me. He describes them as believers. Jesus identifies with them. So when you receive them into your home and serve them, you are serving Jesus Himself. If you serve them in Jesus' name, you are really serving Jesus Himself. If you receive them in Jesus' name, you're really receiving Jesus Himself. And if you receive Jesus, you receive His Father. Now that is a staggering line of thought. To receive a child is ultimately to receive God Himself. Children are at one end of this chain. God the Father is at the other end of this chain. you got children at one end. God at the other end. They're linked together through Jesus. Now certainly, serving children is not the only form of kingdom service that Jesus greatly values. There are many others. We'll see some of them later on in this passage. But in talking about serving children and receiving children in this way, what Jesus is doing is giving us a paradigm of kingdom service. What kingdom service really looks like. And it's so important because in the first century world, just like in the 21st century world, the culture didn't think too much of children. And the culture didn't think too highly of those who serve children just as our culture does. When Jesus treats the child this way and says these things, He is showing us the economy of the kingdom, how things are valued and prioritized in the kingdom. He's showing to us the value system of His kingdom. 
Because see, the truth is, in any culture, children are always the lowliest, the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most needy members of any society. Children cannot return service that is done for them. They are helpless. They are the epitome of weakness. They are as low on the honor scale as you can go. But Jesus says, when you serve a child, you're really serving Me. When you receive a child, you're really receiving Me. And in receiving Me, you're receiving the Father who sent Me. You're receiving God Himself. I've known Christian moms who got frustrated because both all these other Christians out there doing great things for God's kingdom apparently, and, and, and the mom would say, I'm stuck here sweeping floors and changing diapers. But understand, if you're sweeping floors and changing diapers, you are doing a great work for the kingdom of God. You are doing those things for Jesus Himself. You are serving the kingdom in serving your children. But understand, serving children doesn't mean indulging them. In fact, I would say it's just the opposite. It means raising them up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is always hard work. Well, look, I have known people who have said they did not want to have children because they wanted to be free to do big things for God's kingdom. Big things for God's kingdom. And children would get in the way of that. Well, in truth, there is no bigger thing than this. There's no bigger form of kingdom service than serving children. so interesting how the disciples just don't get this. In the next chapter... Children are going to be coming to Jesus and the disciples are going to drive them away because they think we're too important and our time is too important for children. In reality, what Jesus is saying, there's nothing more important than children. Let me go one step further here. I have known Christian parents who are so, so anxious over whether or not their kids would receive Christ. Will my child pray to receive Christ someday? Will my child receive Christ? But I want you to see, the issue in this passage is not, will our kids receive Christ? The issue is, will parents receive Christ in their children? The issue is not, will your kids receive Christ? The issue is, will you receive Christ in the children God has given? Have you received Christ in your child? Again, the issue is not, has your child received Christ? The issue is, have you received Christ in your kids? Have you received your child in Christ's name? If so, you've received Christ. And if you've received Christ in this way, you've also received the Father who sent Christ. See, Jesus assigns a different status to our children than we do. Often in the church, even than the status we give. We tend to think of children as potentially, potentially the church of tomorrow. Jesus treats them as vital members of the church of today. We think they're unimportant. Jesus says they are super important. When Jesus says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. This is fascinating. That is the same language He uses for His apostles when He sends them out in Matthew chapter 10. He says to His apostles as He's sending them out on their missionary journey, He says, whoever receives you receives Me, and when they receive Me, they receive the Father who sent Me. 
Now Jesus uses that same language to talk about children. That is to say, He gives to children the same stature and the same status as apostles. As the apostles. And yet here, the apostles think we're so important and children are so unimportant. No. See, what's blinding the disciples here is their pride. One of the best ways to put your pride to death is to serve a child. Serve a child for a while and you will find it very humble. Here you have the disciples arguing over who will get top billing in the kingdom. And Jesus shows them a different way altogether by putting a child at the top. The measure of kingdom greatness is seen in your willingness to serve the weak and the lowly and the needy. The measure of greatness in the kingdom is your willingness to serve others, particularly those under you, under you in rank and authority and status. Men, think about this in your homes. Men, do you want to be the ruler of your home, the the head of your household? Well, if so, then Jesus shows you how. You've got to serve. You've got to make yourself last. That's what it means to be a kingdom husband, a kingdom father. Don't demand service from everybody. Render service. Put aside your comforts and your rights and your own agenda in order to serve others. You know, there's an old saying, if you want to know what a man is really like, look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. Look at how you treat those who are beneath you in status, rank, dignity, intelligence, wealth, gifts, whatever it might be. That's a way to measure your faithfulness to this kingdom vision. Let me close with this. What are some things that we can do to further cultivate this vision of greatness Jesus gives us here? How can we cultivate this vision of greatness through servanthood in the kingdom? I think it starts with remembering the words of Jesus, remembering what Jesus has done. Remember what Jesus has done for you. How you were helpless and He came to serve you. His service makes love visible. Service is love in action. Jesus has shown you love despite how unlovable you were. Jesus is greater than you are, but He stooped to serve you and indeed die for you. And ultimately, it is the cross alone that can break pride's grip. Because the cross teaches us our sin and God's service. The cross breaks pride's grip and shows us how to use power rightly. How does Jesus reign? He enters into His kingdom on a cross. He reigns from a tree. That's what kingship and authority look like in the kingdom. So we've got to begin to live life in light of the cross. What does that mean? It means don't despise the weaknesses of others. Don't despise the lowly. Instead, stoop to serve them. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Be harder on your own sins than you are on the sins of others. You know, we tend to excuse our own sins and condemn others' sins. Reverse that. Condemn your own sins and think of a good reason why that other person acted the way they did. That can help you break pride's grip. Crucify your ideas about greatness. Learn from the example of Jesus Himself. Stop vying for worldly greatness and pursue kingdom greatness the way Jesus tells us to here. See, Jesus is the perfect model of humble servanthood. 
And we are called to follow Him, to imitate Him. And when we do so, we fulfill the command Paul gives in Galatians 5.13. Paul says, through love, serve one another. And when we serve one another in humility and in love in this way, then we become truly great. For it is the humble who will be exalted. Those who serve will receive glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that we would be humbled and that we would learn the lesson of servanthood that Jesus taught, yes, in the house at Capernaum, but especially on His cross. We pray this in His name. Amen.